Our scripture uh, reading today is Luke 24, 36 through 50. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is my, I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for, for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, good to be with you. My name is Nate, if I haven't met you yet. Uh, great to be with you. Um, some of you guys know a couple weeks ago I was up here in we were flying out that, that night with my wife, Amanda, and I for a redo of our 20th anniversary. Went to Portugal. It was amazing. It was beautiful. It was just a ton of fun. Perhaps that's why I'm thinking about this. If I could take you all on another trip, if we could hop on a plane, I would take you to Milan, Italy. And when we got to Milan, we'd go to this basilica, the Basilica de Sant'Ambrogio. It's a church. And there we'd walk in... And we'd go to the, the front, there'd be an altar. And right around the altar, there's a small space where you would descend almost into like a Gothic cave. And there, you would find a row of small pews. And in front of them would be a glass, almost like it was an aquarium, but it's not fish behind there. There are three bodies. Gervasius, Protasius, who were early martyrs of the Christian faith, and then Ambrose, the bishop. And each of them would be clothed. Sounds kind of haunting, right? The reason why they're there, it's not a fascination with mortality, but it's this. They are awaiting the bodily resurrection. This is the way that they handle death. With eyes wide open, with a deep, pervasive hope. How about us? I'm not saying we build a crypt here, by the way. But I will say this. You know, a number of years ago, I was listening to a, a pastor meet with a number of young pastors and he was trying to address something that happens in ministry, and that is there can be this pervasive notion of very much selfish ambition and vainglory in positions of power. We see that all over the place, right? And he said this, these young group of pastors, he said, hey, um, 
just so you know, uh, you're, you're going to die someday, and your congregation is going to bury you. And then afterwards, they're going to go have some potato salad and some ham sandwiches, and they're going to go home. I remember reading that, and I was like, seriously? Come on. And right in that moment, what was that doing? It was breaking a bubble of our cultural notion that we try to distract ourselves from this notion of death. We try to avoid any talk about it. But let me suggest this this morning as we continue our series rooted, unpacking the Apostles' Creed. We come to a portion of it that enables us to face death with eyes wide open, with a deep, pervasive hope. And the Creed says this, we just read it a moment ago. It says this, that Jesus, he descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. And so if you're with me this morning, here's the point, here's where we're going We want to see how this part of the creed enables to root our lives in Jesus' triumph over death in order to have certain hope in the present moment that even death cannot abate God's love. So three things this morning. We're going to see this hope is historical. Secondly, this hope is biblical. And thirdly, this hope is personal. So let me pray and we'll get in. Father, we give you thanks for this hope, and we pray now that living Christ, you would open our minds so we might understand your scriptures. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, in our passage, you know, verse 36 uh, opens with this. It says they were, these disciples are talking about these things. And these things are, in the context, it's rumors of a resurrection, It's rumors that Jesus has risen. And before we get more into the text, I want to take a moment because we have to get to the portion of the creed that is actually the most controversial statement in it. It's this, he descended into hell. What does that mean? Uh, Just just a couple notes. If you have some coffee, drink up. Um, If you're kind of slouching, sit up. This is going to take a moment. Focus in here. But Raymond Kanata does a great work on this in his book on the Apostles' Creed. And he, and he, he summarizes three ways of, of ways this has been talked about. The first is this. Some have looked at that portion of the creed, he descended to hell, as simply stating that this, this is actually that Jesus took the full brunt of God's wrath for sin on the cross. In other words, think for the moment when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not just a moment where Jesus has physical pain, but it's a moment in which Jesus is taking on the penalty of sin, the very wrath of God. Now, this is taught in scriptures. It's clear, 1 John 2, Romans 3. But here's the deal. In the portion of this creed, it's actually unlikely that that's what it means. And here's why. If we were talking about Jesus taking on the full brunt of God's wrath here for this portion of the creed, you'd expect actually this to come earlier. In other words, the creed might read something like this. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, descended to hell, and then died and was buried. But that's not where you find it. It's not the way it's written, so not likely. The second way 
people say is that some, some say actually Jesus, actually after he, went, um, after he died, he actually went to hell after dying on the cross. Now this has perhaps some theological bearings because we talk a little bit about this, that Jesus deserves, excuse me, Jesus gets what we deserve in his place, but the problem is that this isn't clearly taught in any other place in Scripture. In fact, there are other places that seem to contradict it very clearly. For example, just previous in Luke 23, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. So, probably not that one. All right, so here's, here's the third one. <clears throat> it begins by making a distinction. The Greek word in the Apostles' Creed is the word Hades, which sometimes gets translated hell, but is most oftentimes a general term for the grave or the place of the dead. So, for example, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is Sheol. That would be an equivalent and it's simply the place where the spirit or soul goes once it's separated from the body in death. In the New Testament, there's another term used for hell. In fact, it's the one that Jesus uses. And it's the Greek term Gehenna. And this means the place of punishment. It's actually a literal spot outside of Jerusalem where they dump trash. It was literally on fire all the time. This is what Jesus talked about when he talked about the fiery judgment of hell. He used that term. And note this, the creed uses Hades, not Gehenna. And therefore, the best understanding of this portion of the creed is simply saying this, that Jesus actually died. His soul was separated from his body, and it went down into the place of the dead. And there's two implications here for us today. The first is this, <clears throat> This portion of the creed is then simply affirming that Jesus actually died. When we talk about resurrection, we're not talking about resuscitation. We're not talking about like he sort of was like just limping. No, this is like he was dead, dead. But secondly, and perhaps even more of a personal application, is, is put it this way, a friend of mine used the analogy of this. He's got kids, and every time they move to a new house, the kids are scared of the basement, and so, what do the kids do? They, they grab their parents, they bring them downstairs, and what do the parents do? The parents just turn on the lights. They go with them, they say, hey, it's fine, we're here, you're there, we're fine. Nothing to be scared of. Well, put it this way. If you are in Christ today, there is no place where you will go where Christ has not yet been. And if you understand that he's risen and that he's gone down to the dead, you understand he's turned the lights on. The lights are on. Richard Baxter, in one of his hymns, wrote this, Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. What a comfort. But the creed not only says he descended to hell, it says that he rose again on the third day. And, and let's look for a moment at Luke's account of what happened. And listen, I, I hope you're surprised at this. Look at verses 36 to 43. As they were talking about these things, again, the rumors of the resurrection, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? 
And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. That is, I myself touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, were, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it before them. This is such a stunning account. Just note a couple things. They think Jesus initially is a spirit, do they not? Right? They think this is just the spirit. But then Jesus is very clearly showing this is more than just a spirit. This is his body. Right? He says, here's my hands. Here's my feet. Touch me. Like he is getting, this is physical. And then notice he sees, he's like, I'm hungry. Give me something to eat. Spirits don't eat, right? This isn't like Ghostbusters, that weird one where the, you know, the ghost eats. No, this is, this is bodily, okay? Now, when I say the, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection is historical, I want you to understand something. Some people will say this, have said Jesus' resurrection, it's more of a metaphor. It's more of an analogy. It, it's more of a, his, his message sort of lives on. I want to be clear, that's not, is, that's not what's recorded here. That's not at all. You know, earlier on, like a couple weeks ago, we were in um, Christ and the Virgin Birth. And I noted that, I want to point this out. In Luke 1, Luke begins his prologue saying, I'm writing this, having interviewed eyewitnesses, writing an orderly account, so you may have certainty with the things which have been taught to you. G- Luke is writing history. Luke is not writing mythology. Luke is writing a historical account. This happened. That's what Luke is saying. This happened. This is history. Bodily resurrection. Jesus, not resuscitated. This happened. And one of the things I love about the scriptures is that Oftentimes, our natural response to the text is like right there in those that were there. Do you notice how the disciples, they're startled, they're frightened, they don't believe. Jesus says to them, "Um, why are you doubting? Why are doubts arising in your heart? Does that initially surprise you? That the disciples are skeptical? You know, if we could go back to the rest of this chapter, um, the very beginning of it, two women, excuse me, several women go to where Jesus is buried, and they're going to anoint his body with spices. And they encounter two angels, and the angels say, why do you seek the living among the dead? And they go back to the 11, the disciples, and they tell them what happened. And in verse 11, they respond with this way, they didn't believe it. It says, it seemed to them an idle tale, which means it's a silly story. It's pure nonsense. And do you realize these are the 11 that were with Jesus when he told them multiple times, I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise from the dead. He told them that before it even happened. And yet even they aren't believing it. In other words, do you understand? If you're skeptical, if you're doubtful, you're actually no far different. You've got company here. Right in the text. There's a moment right before this passage. There's two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus shows up incognito. They don't recognize him. 
And he's walking with them. They're talking about the events. They don't recognize him. And all of a sudden, they break bread, and all of a sudden, Jesus is revealed. And that's why in verse 36, they're talking about these rumors of a resurrection because this is blowing their minds. They didn't expect this. Let me put it this way. I would submit to you, it's as hard, if potentially harder, for them to believe in the resurrection than it is for us to believe in the resurrection. And that may feel like a stretch, but let me give you two reasons why. First is, a crucified Jesus meant one thing. It meant it's over. We backed the wrong man. This is not the Messiah. There had been people who had come before and been killed and crucified, and it was done with. We lost. We put all of our eggs in this basket, and it's over. We just wasted our lives. And that's why they didn't show up at the tomb. That's why there's no disciples there. Because their hope is gone. But secondly, listen, their view of the resurrection did not match what just happened. So many Jews, not all Jews, had a hope of a bodily resurrection. You can read about it in the prophet Daniel. But that was at the end of history, and it was everybody, everyone. But no Jew in their mind had anything about one man in the middle of history rising from the dead. Do you understand that? This is category-breaking. This doesn't compute with what they think of the world and what God's doing in it. That's why they're so startled. And in Luke, if he were here today, I think he might send something to the rationalistic, naturalistic understanding of the world that, that we know of. And he would say something like this, listen, I wrote to you at the beginning of the gospel. I have sought and interviewed eyewitnesses who were there, who saw him eat a piece of broiled fish. Jesus is risen. It really happened. This hope that Luke is calling us toward, it is it's historical. It is a fact to be believed. But it's also more than that. It's biblical. Look at verses 44 to 46. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Have you guys ever seen a photo mosaic? Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you have um, a huge image, but it's all made up of really small, tiny pictures. And it's one big image from way back, far away, but when you get closer, it's all these tiny pictures that make up the image. When Jesus says, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That summarizes the entire section of the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, do you know all the stories of the Old Testament? These are small, tiny pictures. But if you take a step back and you understand the death and resurrection of what I've just done, it all points to me. It's all about me. Think back for a moment. When God created the world that was good, and Adam and Eve fell. Right at that moment, God makes a promise that the offspring of the woman in Genesis 3 would be victorious over the offspring of the servant, even though he would be wounded. Jesus is the offspring. 
Or go to the prophets. Think about Isaiah 53. What does it say? He was crushed for our transgressions. Excuse me, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus is saying, don't you see? I am the suffering servant that takes care of your sin. Or go to the Psalms. Think about King David in Psalm 1610. He writes this. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Don't you see the long-awaited Davidic king? God has followed through on his promise. The resurrection is not a one-off. It is, a, it, is, it is the crowning achievement on the whole story of Scripture. It is a sign of what God is doing and will do in the world. You remember, um, I, I think I say this every Easter, but it's my, it's my go-to. If you ever watch Back to the Future? Ever seen that movie? Anybody? You're all, okay, couple. Great, thank you for being here. There's... I can't remember which one. It might be the first one. But there's the one where he goes to the future, he gets the hoverboard. You remember the hoverboard? And he brings it back to the present and he rides it. You know, and I remember, I literally remember when this movie came out, I was like, did that really happen? Is this true? Is there a hoverboard? Because I want one. I mean, I, I just, I was young enough at that point. I mean, this, this is the 80s, okay? But when people saw the hoverboard, they knew something. That is the future in the present, And that's exactly what's happening here with Christ bodily resurrected. This is God's future showing up in the present. In other words, this world matters. There's a point, um, Vinith Ramachandra talks about this. He says this quote. He says, Biblical salvation lies not in escape from the world, But in the transformation of this world, you will not find hope for the world in any of the religious systems or philosophies of humankind. The biblical vision is unique. That is why some say there is salvation in other faiths too. I ask them, what salvation are you talking about? No faith holds out a promise of eternal salvation for the world, the ordinary world that the cross and the resurrection of Jesus do. And here's what it meant. Do you understand in the Roman world, there was no such thing as public health care. There was nothing like it. Do you know why public health care got started? It was because Christianity emerged. It's because the pagans became Christians. Because this world matters. It's just, it's even hard to like explain this, but this is so category breaking. Like this world matters. It's not just a one-off. This hope, it's historical. It's, it's biblical, but it's also personal. So let me say this morning, if you're, if you're not a Christian, maybe you're skeptical, here's what happens oftentimes in my profession. People will come to me and they'll say, Pastor, I'm thinking about faith, but then I, I've got a question about this. And oftentimes it's, it's a political issue. What about this? What do you guys think about this? Or sometimes it's, what is it going to mean for my non-Christian girlfriend that I'm dating if I became a Christian? Or sometimes it's, does Christianity really tell me who I can sleep with? Or sometimes it might be like, well, what about the church? The church is just an absolute mess. And, and when people come to me with that, I, I, I mean, in one sense, 
I try to be winsome and address a particular issue. But one of the things I always say is don't start there. Put it this way. Some of you went to college. Some of you are still thinking about going to college. Do you pick a college on, their, on, on like the cafeteria at the college you want to go to? Like when you visit, are you like, we're going to the cafeteria. This is going to make or break the decision. No. You know, it's like, no, you don't think about that because the point is you, you're trying to get educated. You want to get a degree. You want to be trained for vocation. This is, that's a pretty bad example of what we're talking about here, but I'll just say this. If this is true, like if Christ is risen and it's historical and it's what the whole thing is about, it's biblical, you've got to start there. You've got to wrestle with that. If it really happened that God came down in the flesh, died for you, and rose from the dead bodily, then I'm sorry, it's going to affect you in every way. It's going to change you politically, relationally, monetarily, sexually. It's going to change everything about you. How can you bring these small things and say, well, if, if this can't quite fit, I'm not going to... You're not dealing with it. And here's where I'd point you. You know what's remarkable? Two times in Luke's gospel in this chapter... The risen Christ, do you want to know how he reveals himself? I mean, he shows up, but each time he shows up, do you know what he does? He takes them to the scriptures. Each time, he has a Bible study with them. The risen Christ has a Bible study. That's how he reveals himself. So that's what I'd say to you. If you're not a Christian, if you're skeptical, go to the scriptures. Wrestle with it. That's where... Jesus takes his first disciples. That's where they find him. Yeah, they see him, but it's when they open the scriptures, they go, I'm starting to see how this all fits. Secondly, lastly, if you're a Christian, look at verse 47. It says this, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, what I want to do for a moment here, I want you to think for a moment. What, right, what came right before that was it said that, this is part of it, that, that before it says, thus written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And then, in that, and then it goes to verse 47. So do you understand something, what Jesus is saying there? We're in the story. Did you get that? Like the previous thing that the scriptures would be fulfilled are his death and resurrection, but now he's saying this word's got to get out to the nations. You, like, so we're in the story. Let me get real practical because I think oftentimes we hear, oh, repentance, forgiveness of sins. Okay, so I got to get out there, share my faith. And sometimes I think what we have in our view is like the guy on the street that's you know, most time I feel like it's condemning someone, you know, but like trying to share that way. But let me say this is far more robust than an awkward sort of forced conversation. Because if you understand this hope, like if Jesus really has risen, 
And that means death has been defeated. Your sins are forgiven. If that has happened, then Jesus cannot be a side hope, right? He can't just be a mini hope amidst your other hopes. No, this is the hope. It means everything in your life must be filtered through that hope. Are you dealing with anxiety? But do you understand, like, you got to get to Jesus and what he's done and who he is and what he says about worry. Are you dealing with suffering or relational conflict? Are you dealing with just straight-up physical illness? This is the lens through which you see everything in your life. And yeah, it means words are spoken and you bear witness, but it also means the people around you look in and they go, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't feel, I don't understand how you can walk through this and be this way. I'll give you one example. A friend of mine's overseas. He's in a part of another part of the like, world where most of the time women don't have a lot of rights. And they're living over there and they're having people over their home. And this guy he loves and he serves his wife. And the people are around them, and they're just like, I don't get this. Why? I'm looking at your marriage. I'm looking at what you're doing in your family, and I'm going, this is different. See, that's it right there. That's the signpost. And then all it is like, well, let me tell you about Jesus. I know it's not all that simple, but do you understand this hope It's got to be a capital H, capital O, capital P, capital E, hope. It is not a small hope. So, he descended to hell. And on the third day, he rose again. Root, let us root our lives in that hope. And let us live in light of it. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you for the news that the grave is empty. We thank you, Jesus, that you have gone down into the depths of death itself and you've come out on the other side. We give you thanks that all those in faith in you need not fear death, for you've defeated it. And Jesus, we pray that you would enable us as a community to live out that hope with the grace and the power that your spirit provides. And we ask this in your name. Amen.